Blog Talk Radio. Good afternoon to all our listeners. You have tuned in to the Perkins Platform. Uh, this is the host, uh, Brian Perkins, and we are here uh, to discuss with some of the nation's leaders in education leadership um, to discuss challenges and problems uh, faced, uh, as well as um, the promise of, of good schools and good public schools in the United States. And we have with us today uh, Dr. Elaine Weiss, who is the National Coordinator for a Broader, Bolder Approach to Education campaign uh, with the Economic Policy uh, Institute. Welcome, Elaine. Thank you so much for having me. Yes, and Elaine is the co-author of a, uh, a groundbreaking report um, looking at education reform in, in a few cities, D.C., uh, New York City, and Chicago, um, and uh, asked Elaine to come on and tell us about some of the findings from her uh, research study. And so, Elaine, I guess I want to start with asking you first to give us a little background on on um, you, the, the Policy Institute, but mainly about why this research now and what it tells us. So really briefly, uh, the Broader Boulder Approach to Education, or BBA as we often go by, um, it came about about four and a half years ago, uh, bringing together a group of, uh, a diverse group of scholars, uh, education scholars, current former superintendents, um, some surgeons general, economists, and a bunch of others who have all been concerned that the standards and accountability reform movement, especially alone in itself um, is insufficient to do what we want to do, which is to close our recent income-based achievement gaps, and that indeed it could do some harm by putting pressure on school students and teachers um, to do things that they may have little control over or that they're not being supported to do. Um, and this report really comes out of that philosophy. Um, so, uh, you know, as I told you, I, I don't come into this without a bias. Um, I did go into looking at um, the outcomes in these three cities, assuming that they weren't quite as rosy as what we had been told. Uh, I was, however, surprised at how very unrosy they were. So I, I'm going to just start out by framing this a bit and talk about why we thought this particular report was important and how uh, we structured it, kind of why we chose these cities and how they work. Um, we felt that the report was very important because the recent decade has really seen this standards and accountability approach to reform that I talked about um, that was codified in No Child Left Behind, cemented and amplified. And that is particularly true since President Obama's first election. And I want to give a few um, kind of supports for that. Um, his two signature education policies, his and Secretary Duncan's race to the top and the waivers that are being granted to states under No Child Left Behind, um, the requirements for both of those increase uh, the reliance on standardized test scores to make high-stakes decisions regarding hiring, rewarding, and firing teachers and increasingly principals, and also awarding or closing entire schools. Uh, and they also promote, promote charter schools as generally better alternatives to so-called failing schools and dropout factories. Mm -hmm. Now, this same uh, set of reforms, which we term market-oriented reforms, is aggressively promoted by a number of high-profile organized advocacy groups. Uh, these include Students First, Stand for Children, Democrats for Education Reform, and 50CAN, but there are certainly others. Um, this same agenda has been employed in several large urban districts for many years and is now being adopted across dozens of others and pieces or all of it at the state level. So 
to some extent, this should no longer be seen as an experimental reform. It actually begins to look more like a new status quo. Um, that said, the research base is not at all clear on the benefits of this agenda, and we thought given how widespread it is and how embedded it's becoming, that it was critical to understand its impact in real-life circumstances. Mm-hmm. Now, we chose these three cities, as you said, Washington, D.C., New York, and Chicago, for study for several reasons. Uh, first of all, and most obviously, they're all led by self-proclaimed reformers um, who have since gone on, since being the leaders of these school districts, whether they were called chancellors or CEOs, to promote this agenda more broadly. Um, Duncan, of course, as, you know, as, as Secretary of Education, um, but also Michelle Rhee, um, Bloomberg, and Klein. Um, two of these three cities saw a full decade to implement the reform, so a good long time to look at what happened, and Washington, D.C. is already in its sixth year. Um, All three had the benefit of mayoral control and touted that as key to their success, and they also had relatively generous budgets at the time. Um, Very critical to us, they're all part of the NAEP TUDA study, the Trial Urban District Assessment, which means that unlike most school districts, usually we only have NAEP scores at the state level, but in these and several others, we have reliable valid test scores, um, that are comparable over time and across districts, which we don't have in state-level state mm-hmm. test scores. Mm-hmm. So these scores can be compared to prior periods before the reforms, but also to other large, comparable urban high-poverty school districts who are the other members of this TUDA study. Mm-hmm. Um, all of this together enables us to compare these districts to this cluster of others that either didn't use the reforms at all, used them much less or only in pieces, and or that lacked the mayoral control to support these efforts. Mm-hmm. So we feel that in all, this enables us to say fairly conclusively that this is the best kind of most relevant test of the potential for these policies to achieve their stated goals, mm-hmm. namely to boost low-income and minority student scores and close race and income-based achievement gaps. Mm-hmm. Um, that said, under these best of circumstances, they really didn't do it. And, and I'm going to talk just very briefly about our findings. Um, to say that the outcomes are disappointing, I think, would be an understatement. Um, The outcomes that we found across the cities really countered both the reformers' promises of improvement and their claims that they had succeeded. Um, Across these three cities, student test scores on average increased less than those of other large urban districts during the same period. So not only didn't they do a lot better, they didn't even keep up. Um, In some cases, they improved substantially less so. And where there was growth, the vast majority of that growth accrued not to the disadvantaged students it was supposed to, but to higher-income non-minority students. Um, As a result of that disparity, um, while race-based achievement gaps were narrowing in comparable districts over the period and income-based achievement gaps pretty much stayed the same, both kind of gaps either stagnated or widened in these three cities. Um, It wasn't true in all cases, but the trend was um, in both math and reading and in both fourth and eighth grades, which was very disturbing to us. Um, These realities also come as a surprise, Um, and that's partly because the reformers in these three cities have made very public proclamations of major progress for these very disadvantaged students who indeed did not, by and large, progress. Um, One example is Mayor Bloomberg, who claimed multiple times, including at one live forum that I was at, um, to have cut New York City's race-based achievement gap in half. In other words, to have reduced it by 50%. Mm -hmm. Um, When those scores were averaged across subject matters and fourth and eighth grade, it turned out that rather than cutting the gap by 50%, he had cut it by 1%. Um, And when... NAEP scores were substituted for state scores that he was citing, it actually grew a tiny, tiny bit. Um, 
Moreover, the reforms had problematic consequences at the systemic level. Um, we were interested not only at the cost to individual students, what happened with individual teachers, um, but what happened to school systems overall. And we saw some disturbing things there as well. Um, what it looked like was that the student test scores that were intended to um, intentionally disrupt, as market-oriented reformers often called the system, turned out to force out or burn out stronger experienced teachers. They seemed to have dissuaded good new teachers from entering the system. And the result, in some cases, was a, was a widening of an already very large gap in teacher qualifications and experience between high and low income and majority and minority schools. Um, and then there were school closures. Um, these closures, massive school closures, left holes in neighborhood support systems that really needed them. They alienated parents. They hurt student morale. And all of that without improving the outcomes of the students whose schools were closed or saving districts money. Um, one example, a really kind of out there example, is Chicago, where 94% of students whose quote-unquote underperforming schools were closed under Duncan didn't do any better in the schools to which they were sent because they had similarly low scores. They weren't better schools, at least by Chicago's measures. Um, at the same time, those students had longer commutes. Um, there were spikes in gang violence as gang lines were crossed, and other problems happened. Um, finally, I just want to note that in all three of these cities, much more comprehensive policies that look nothing like these reforms with real promise have largely lacked attention, and they should be gaining attention. They're, they're these same cities, these same leaders. Um, in New York City, unlike the reforms, the small schools had strong, consistent student-teacher relationships, and they focused on hands-on educational experiences that really contrast with the rest of the reform agenda and seem to have produced really strong results for very at-risk students. Mm -hmm. um, in Chicago, the same city that was getting rid of experienced and qualified teachers through dozens of school closures was intentionally recruiting great teachers from really strong school uh, preparation programs, um, and this really helped even out teacher quality across different kinds of schools. Um, in Washington, D.C., one of the strongest, um, highest quality pre-K programs in the country seems to have boosted third grade test scores, yet Michelle Reed never talks about this in her Students First agenda that she uses to grade states. Um, and I guess our last point would be that these um, reforms were doomed from the start in that they neglected and dismissed the major impact of poverty that's clear across these cities and others. And we continue to strongly believe that future reforms that do the same will continue to be doomed unless they take that really critical impact into account. Sure. And, you know, I, I am a strong believer uh, that um, these these initiatives are not without some some real, whether they are policy goals or, or financial incentives uh, in terms of the cities that are undertaking them or otherwise, um, but what you've pointed out here um, are some things that we've known for a long time. For example, about the the importance of hands-on educational experiences for students that have been at risk. Um, a mentor of mine once said, uh, in relationship to uh, children in schools, uh, they're all at risk. You know that we we we, we have to start thinking differently about um, this this notion that uh, we can get past. Um, the, the at-risk status, as long as they're in school um, and we pursue um, um, 
agendas, um, they, they will continue to be at risk. But hands-on educational experiences are at the foundation of uh, long-held uh, pedagogical um, uh, philosophies, particularly around constructivist education and so forth. And what is it about uh, this that seems to uh, cycle, if you will, that keeps going around in a cycle that where we jump on the bandwagon of um, uh, addressing the whole child, looking at their interests, looking at their talents, or uh, how a gardener referred, uh, referred to it as their intelligences. Um, wh what is it that uh, causes us to um, to to ignore that th these these strategies have been around for a long time, like the first one you mentioned in in terms of hands on education. You know, I think a those things are just more complicated. It doesn't fit very well on a bumper sticker to say that it's important to provide a student context, that having a student do something, take on a challenge, um, actually engage in a project can be more productive. And they're hard to measure. You know, it's much more hard to quantify. It's much more difficult to quantify what's going on. Um, I think that's part of what's going on. I do think part of what's going on is there is a real dismissal, at least there is an undercurrent of it among some reformers, of this impact of poverty. Um, and that that's part of what's going on as well. Um, and I think those two pieces have unfortunately married themselves to, and I don't think this is necessarily the case with these reformers, but they have married themselves to a set of interests that have a financial interest in privatizing schools, in, in, in turning schools over into charters, um, in selling things to schools. So, you know, I think we have this confluence of interests that's very unfortunate. Um, and frankly, we have... It's very hard to read this report and not see that there's a real dismissal of issues of race here. I mean, the, the kids whose schools are being closed in particular, even if you um, factor in uh, income, there's definitely a, a bias that, that low-income kids are, are disproportionately being hurt, but children of color are far disproportionately being impacted by this. And wh why is that not in, in the public discourse? Are we still struggling with, uh, issues that we we are unable to talk about uh, racial um, inequity. You know, I have to I have to say that part of what really hit me in in not only researching and writing this report, but in rereading what I what I had found, what we had found, I should say, my co-author on this, uh, Don Long, was fantastic. Um, was there seems to be running through this an underlying current of those children learn differently or need different things. Um, and it's, it's, I say that, I'm very disturbed to say that, but it's very hard for me not to come to that conclusion. Um, I really don't believe that professional parents, parents in largely white neighborhoods would put up with the kind of things that are being done in and to these schools, that they would put up with mass closures, that they would put up with substituting experienced teachers for novices just because they were very good students in college, um, that they would put up with having everything based on the test score, that they would put up with having real curriculum um, stripped from their students and being replaced with vocabulary drills. And, and the idea that any student could learn that way or would learn well that way is ridiculous. Um, and so, you know, there is, there is to me an undercurrent of that, of the, the, the idea that poor kids and children of color somehow need something different. They need something more like boot camp because that is a lot of what looks like it's happening in these schools. Yes, I see. And, and what do you think um, individuals uh, need to 
who are at the forefront, whether they are designing new schools or or new policymakers, board members that are have just been elected, what do they need to know in order to be advocates for this? I think what they should know is that, of course, absolutely all children can learn, um, given the right opportunities, and that it's critical to provide those opportunities to all children, and that really effective school reform involves ensuring that those opportunities are available to all children and that they are especially available to children who will tend to lack them. And that includes, and to remember that this is a whole child we're talking about, not just a child's brain, um, that all children need to come to school. This is very fundamental, but they need to be well-fed. They need to have a great breakfast, a great lunch, and a great dinner, and that otherwise they will have problems learning. And that if those children are poor or live in racial isolation, they're less likely to have that. That healthy children learn better. And so for children who live in communities or in families where that's harder to get to, health clinics are a great option. Um, That all children should come to kindergarten well-prepared, and that being a year or two behind when you enter kindergarten makes it very, very hard for you to progress successfully through school. So they should all be thinking very, very hard about early childhood education. Um, And that throughout the year, they should be thinking that the same kinds of experiences that enable, frankly, children of professional parents to thrive in the schools that they go to, smaller classes, hands-on experiences, uh, really enriching broad curriculums with high standards, those are the factors that enable all students to thrive, but that are unfortunately really lacking, way too lacking for our poor kids and our students of color. Absolutely. You're making some really, really important points, and I hope our colleagues out there who are in the uh, public policy arena uh, and the implementation side uh, are listening. Uh, For those of you who may be just joining, this is the Perkins Platform. We have with us uh, this afternoon Dr. Elaine Weiss, who is the National Coordinator of Broader Bolder Approach to Education Campaign with the Education Policy Institute. Uh, We will uh, be open to calls uh, later in the show uh, in just a few moments. Uh, If you dial in 347-826-9029. Again, the number is 347-826-9029. So, Elaine, I want to go back. um, Earlier in the year, we had a few guests on that also talked about the importance of early childhood education. And that's not to throw away the notion that we need to have good high schools. Right. Um, But um, time and time again, reports and research studies have been done about the significance of making that investment early on. Brain research teaches us that's the best investment. Um, right. And, and um, we, we know that um, most of the learning that takes place during the 12 years and 16 plus um, that happens in public schools happens on the front end. Uh, from the public policy side, what do you think the greatest barrier is to having that message heard and understood? Um, I am a former member of the board of directors for the National School Boards Association, and one of the things that we talked about often is pushing forward an agenda um, that encouraged boards to uh, make investments in early childhood education. But what do you think the largest barrier, I think there's one that jumps out at us, obviously, is money. But what do you think in terms of of that that prevents our policymakers and our, and our government officials from making that, that step and making that investment? I mean, I think, I think first of all, there, 
I think there's so much more attention to that paid, and, and I think President Obama and Secretary Duncan get huge kudos for putting this front and center right now, and I'm, you know, fully with them and hope, you know, do everything I can to support it, and I think they are emblematic of the fact that over this same decade, over the last two decades, there's been much more attention paid to this, which is terrific. I would say there are two big barriers. One is we very traditionally see the time before children enter kindergarten in this country as a time of private family responsibility and not public policy. And that goes with pre-K and with everything else that happens before. This is not the case in our competitor countries, if we want to call them that. Other Western nations view this as appropriate time for public policy to be involved, just like it is in K-12 education, perhaps even more so, because as you said, this is such a critical period in which we lay the foundations for children to learn well in those later years. I think that's the first one. It's just a, a matter of of almost of culture. It's a cultural perception that this is a family's responsibility. But just as families couldn't possibly afford to provide most families to provide private education from kindergarten through 12th grade, they can't afford it before kindergarten either. So we really have a choice. We can continue to deprive children and make it harder to do well in school, or we can step up to the plate and recognize that this has to be part of public policy. I think the other piece, as you said, is money. But interestingly or ironically, it would be cheaper to provide high-quality early childhood education than to try to remediate the impacts of not having it, which is what we do now. Um, I think as we come around and realize that while many of the gains may be longer term, financially and economically it still makes so much more sense to invest early. It would be just much cheaper. Absolutely. And there's still so many states that don't uh, require uh, uh, I should say states, areas that don't require um, kindergarten um, and that they are, it, it, it's interesting that we have um, students still just showing up and, and don't have some of the real school uh, readiness skills that are, are required uh, to be on grade level. You're thinking about grade three has often been quoted as a, a, as a, a, a good indicator of determining uh, future performance, um, and and w without uh, much investment on that front end, you just don't you don't see much promise of of students being um, on grade level later on. Absolutely. Yeah, and so we you know we another point that I in in our last few minutes together, I want to take a moment to hear a little bit that you talked about in your report was this notion of uh, of teachers, you, you mentioned about recruiting strong teachers, um, and that's why I started out with you know a lot of what we we need to know we already know about uh, uh, how to improve uh, public education in this country. Uh, is do we have the uh, the will, um, both political will and and kind of broad based social support for it? Um, but this notion of of recruiting strong teachers, I mean. You know, why is that so um, uh, novel an idea uh, that we have to we have to say that again in research report after research report? What is it that's not getting across? Well, for some reason, I think we've gone from we we are definitely we are emphasizing like crazy the need to have strong teachers. I would say, with no disrespect to teachers, perhaps even a bit over the top. I mean, that, that we're neglecting all these other factors that I've talked about. Teachers are fantastic and important, but they there are limits to what they can do if we don't put in place these other supports. That said, we've, we've 
established a set of policies that doesn't make any sense, um, where if our idea is to make uh, teaching a, a higher level profession, if it's to raise up and elevate the status of teachers and to draw you know, the best possible pool of candidates to be teachers, we are doing everything in our power policy-wise to ensure that that does not happen. Um, you know, tying student test scores, um, you know, making teachers um, salaries and indeed they're being hired or fired reliant on student test scores, um, telling them exactly what they're going to teach, um, removing from them uh, the ability to, to be flexible in the classroom and to cater to students' needs, um, putting in their hands uh, the assessment of students and what students do and don't know when they clearly should be doing it. In general, just taking teachers out of the dialogue about what has to happen in schools and reforms is the least professional way we could treat teachers possibly. And then on top of that, acting as if we're going to fire our way to a good teacher core. Mm -hmm. All of that is exactly backwards. The only way to develop a great teacher core is to develop a great teacher core, and it has to start from the beginning with great teacher preparation programs, high salaries, uh, good support for teachers, excellent induction, mentoring, tutoring, coaching, um, all of the things that we do in real professions, like medicine. That is what sure. we're going to have to do in teaching. Sure, sure. And and you, you mentioned uh, uh, teacher preparation programs, which I think is – very crucial. Um, I started out in education um, as a professor in a teacher preparation program, and and I marveled at um, how uh, broad the strokes had to be in teacher preparation, uh, mainly with a push to keep uh, undergraduate education at four years uh, it, it, in in the preparation of teachers. Very difficult. Um, uh, just one example I'd like to uh, throw out there at you is that um, most teacher preparation programs only require one semester of education psychology, and that's generally where teachers learn how to test students, how uh, to learn about how uh, they learn and so forth. And with until we also do something about um, the notion that when teachers come, they have everything they need uh, when out of pre-service, I think that's that's really, until we do something different, that's really something that has to be addressed. And a lot of districts are cutting back on professional development. And, and, at, and at a time when they're not getting everything they need, um, they show up and they can probably make it through the first two months before they need some other tools to put in their toolbox. Uh, we're taking away professional development opportunities. And as we document in our report, in many of these, the poorest schools, the most heavily minority schools, we're talking about people who've never been through any real teacher preparation program. They, they go through four years. They might have gone through six weeks. Sure, sure. And, and they're and, teaching very tough classes, very large classes with very few supports, and often with a lot of other relatively novice teachers on their teams. Well, you've hit some really, really uh, powerful points. Um, and so I'd just like to thank you for joining us today. And, and to our audience, uh, we, we're really appreciative uh, to uh, Dr. Weiss, who is the national coordinator of broader, bolder approach to education, the education, uh, I'm sorry, the Economic Policy Institute. Uh, we'd like to ask you to uh, join us back uh, next month on uh, June 19th at uh, 2 p.m., uh, where we're going to have uh, a, a set of school leaders uh, who have uh, taken some of the advice of 
of the research and and gone into design new schools and uh, these are from a number of areas around the country and we've asked these leaders to come and share with us uh, their hopes and aspirations for these new schools uh, next month uh, uh, June 19th uh, at 2 p.m. and so again we we'd like to thank you Elaine for joining us today uh, your full report will be available on uh, my website, and you can also go to the website of the Economic Policy Institute um, to read what is uh, definitely a thought-provoking and well-constructed study. And um, so, Elaine, um, hopefully later in the year when we, we have some other um, uh, related topics come up, we'd like to invite you back to share a little bit more and, and give some contrast to some of the the, uh, the practitioners in, in the field. So. Uh, we really appreciate you you uh, being with us today. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. And so to um, our listeners out there, look forward to seeing you, hearing from you next month. And until then, go well, stay well.